0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at SportsHistoryNetwork.com.
1: Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. This is Dan Newman coming to you once again with my brother and co-host, Andrew Newman, as well as our special guest, Mr. Greg Gages, who I will go ahead and introduce in just a minute here. Uh, The topic, as you'll see when you click on this episode, is the 1869 Cincinnati Reds. And just to sort of introduce this by way of sort of three very quick stories, Uh, a year ago or so on Andrew's birthday, we don't get very creative with our gifts in the Newman household. And so I had sent Andrew a message and said, hey, you know, is there any idea of what you'd like for your birthday? And as usual, it was a book. And he uh, this book, and it's uh, Baseball Revolutionaries, How the 1869 Cincinnati Red Stockings Rocked the Country and Made Baseball Famous. And so the book looked so good to me that not only did I get it for Andrew for his birthday, but I also... I uh, picked up a copy for myself and he and I which, both read it.
2: Which did spark a controversy in our family about whether it's tacky to get someone <laughs> a gift and then let them know that you also bought that for yourself. But we'll we'll save that topic for another day. <laughs> So that was sort
1: of stage one of this whole story. And then in stage two, about four or five months later, we uh, we we went to Cooperstown as a family. Andrew, and my parents drove out uh, from New York um, from, you know, well, Cooperstown is in New York, but from the Hudson Valley. And my wife and I and dog drove up from D.C. And we got a, a house, a cabin for about four or five days. And Andrew and I were going through the Hall of Fame. And right at the beginning there, they have the the exhibit on the '69. The Reds. And Andrew said, well, we ought to do an episode on that one time. And, you know, we'd read the book and we're like, yeah, no, that's a good idea. Let's do that. And so then fast forward another, God, six or seven months. I am in Cooperstown and at my very first ever Sabre 19th century convention, Sabre Society for American Baseball Research. And uh the, one of the sort of keynote presentations was Greg Gages talking about Not the 1869 Reds, but the 1870 Reds, which was, you know, obviously the following year's team. And so I sent a text to my brother and I said, I think the guy who wrote one of the guys who wrote that book is at this convention and is giving me a presentation right now. And, you know, Andrew and I were texting a little bit during the presentation. I was giving him some funny lines that I'll a couple of which I still have screenshots of that I'll that I'll uh, share in a few minutes and get Greg to comment on. And so I said, you know, we, we had this kind of slated as kind of a mid to late summer topic for the podcast. And I said, hey, wouldn't it be great if I could get this gentleman who who co-authored this book to, to come on the podcast and talk to us? So that was the genesis of it. And I dug up an email that had been sent with contact info for everybody who attended the convention and you know, a couple of emails later, and here we are. Welcome, Mr. Greg Gages, who is the co-author along with Greg Rhodes and John Arardi of Baseball Revolutionaries. Mr. Gages, thank you
3: so
2: much for joining us.
3: Thanks a lot. I really appreciate the uh, offer and looking forward to it.
2: The reason I had asked for the book in the first place is uh, my friends and I are we sort of every year go to a stadium or two as we gradually go through every major league park. And we were go, we went to Cincinnati last September and I always try to read something about, you know, the baseball history in the town before we went. And so that was why I had asked for, for your book originally. And then um, I was actually very impressed with how comprehensive the Reds museum was going as far back to 1869 and all the information they had Um of the different sort of team hall of fames and museums, the Reds was by far the best and most comprehensive I had ever seen, you know, from the modern day all the way to, to the team we're going to talk about tonight.
1: So what was it? And I think you've actually, if I read the notes correctly, this mm-hmm. book was originally written in 1994, correct?
3: That is correct. My co-authors, Greg Rhodes and John Arardi did a version of this in 1994 which was the 125th anniversary of the team and it was the first book they had collaborated on and by their own admission it wasn't that good uh so they brought you in and yeah well they brought me in 25 years later but uh But uh, Greg and John are probably the preeminent historians of the Reds. Uh, They collaborated on Big Red Dynasty, which is the best account of the Big Red Machine era. Uh, They collaborated on a Crosley Field book. Uh, Individually, Greg Rhodes has written a a couple of books, uh, one day by day in Red's history. He just recently released one called Red Leg Memories. It tracks a team from the 1950s and 60s, before the Big Red Machine era. John Arardi did a book on Tony Perez from called from Cuba to Cooperstown. And I had known them because I had been their research help for a lot of these books. And uh, when the 150th anniversary was rolling around, we had gotten some interest in initially just kind of reworking the, uh, republishing the book uh, book that had come out in 1994 and after we had done a little bit of research a they offered me a chance to do a significant share of the writing and get on the cover which was attractive to me because I had never done that and uh we realized there's just a whole lot more resources that weren't available in 1994. I mean John Thorne had done Baseball in the Garden of Eden Newspapers.com, really, Mm -hmm. they had done all the newspaper research in the Cincinnati papers for the original book, but now you had the New York papers to get at, all the tremendous resources uh, at Sabre, including the uh, Bio Project, uh, had biographies on all the key principles of the Red Stockings, and we realized this could be a much bigger book. And they had actually talked to a publisher, but the publisher wanted to do a smaller book and we wanted to do a larger one. So we decided to uh, self-publish this version of the story and include everything we wanted to put into it. So
1: they're called the first professional team, this 1869 Mm -hmm. Cincinnati Red Stockings. For the audience, some of whom may not be familiar, kind of what's the sort of the elevator pitch who are the 1869 Cincinnati red stockings.
3: Yeah. The funny thing is, is almost everything that you would generally say about the 1869 red stockings is not true. (laughs) Uh, They were not the first undefeated team. They were not the first team to tour. They were not the first professional team. There were plenty of teams and players that were paid under the table before 1869, but they, but they were the team that, as uh, John Thorne put it, made baseball famous for uh, for a lot of uh, a lot of different reasons. But uh, they also not affiliated in any way with the Cincinnati Reds, the team formed in uh, 1866, disbanded after the 1870 season. The Reds were not in the uh, first National Association. They were in the original National League in 1876 and were thrown out for playing ball on Sunday and selling beer in 1880. (laughs) And the team that actually became the basis of the current Reds was the American Association entry in 1882. But this team, the thing that really made them notable is that they did all of the, you know, they were the, probably the first openly professional team, and there were other professional teams in 1869. Uh, that was the first year that the uh, National Association allowed professional players. So like I said, there had been people paid before, but it was under the table, phony jobs. Think the NCAA in the 50s and 60s, and you probably have a pretty good idea of, of what it was like for, uh, for those players. And they were very the the purpose of the team the backers decided to make the best team they could tour the country and see see how it played out and they recruited players from all over the country and this was kind of a new thing you know baseball was very much centered in the new york philadelphia dc eastern seaboard area and this was a team that at that time was considered the far west and they went to new york and dc and philadelphia and recruited most of their team there was only one native cincinnatian on the team charlie gould the first baseman
2: and I, i feel like that's an important uh distinction to make too is we're still about two years away from the first thing we would recognize as any kind of a a league in the modern sense they were a part of that was the national association of baseball players right right um and then two years so, so it was a league in the sense that they all had to join this thing, but there was no set schedule. In fact, that's one of the things you guys cover so much in your book mm-hmm. is the Reds had trouble finding, you know, they had to travel to play all those East Coast teams. And even though the trip was a big success, part of it was the hope that they were then gonna get those elite teams from the New York, DC, Philly areas to come play them in Cincinnati. And I think with what one exception that didn't really happen. Yeah.
3: Most, most of them did not give them a return match in, in 1869. mm -hmm. Uh, But you're right. I mean, in any game, any team that was part of the national association, those were quote considered official games. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the interesting things about it is the, obviously the quality of the competition is all over the place. I mean, they had games where they scored 100 runs, I mean, against a much weaker team. But their games against the the power teams in the East were generally pretty competitive.
2: Yeah, and it seems like a lot of their games at home were against uh, what they referred to as the picked nine, which was yes. basically like, get a team together, come play us, yeah. lose, seven, lose 71 to eight, and then be on your way. Right, was, yeah. They would have loved to have higher competition, but again, like you mentioned yeah. back then, Philadelphia, to Cincinnati was a several day ordeal. You had to have money to do it. There was no league paying these dues. So, mm-hmm. you know, geographically, it was much more of a, an obstacle playing in Cincinnati than it is. Well, I was going to say that it is today, but it seems like they have some obstacles today too. With, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
3: Yes. Uh- yeah, and they had laid the groundwork for it in 1868. They had actually done a short tour in New York and Philadelphia in 1868, where they played well, but they didn't dominate like they did in 1869. They they were they were generally competitive with the better teams in 18. I believe they went ten and four on that particular tour between 1868 1869 they really went full out on the recruiting. Uh, Harry Wright's really the most interesting person. At least he was my entry into the project because he was one of the true innovators of early baseball and really this bridge between amateur baseball that's just an entertainment and making the game a profession. Harry Wright's the guy that does that. He basically invents the manager's role. And it's not just here's where you're going to play, and here's the lineup. I mean, he worried, you know, he set their hours, set practice schedules, you know, checked in on the players, uh, had a whole bunch of rules, and that whole model of managers kind of controlling the lives of their players really started with Harry Wright. But he also he and the uh, and the, the chief drivers behind the team was a gentleman named Aaron Champion and another named John Joyce. They went all out on scouting and, and really improving the team. And the biggest signing was getting Harry's younger brother, George, to play for them. George Wright was at that time by far the best player in baseball. I've described him as a combination of Mike Trout hitting and Javi Baez playing shortstop. I mean, he had an incredible amount of flair. Was incredible by the by the standards of the era. Defensively, was by far the best hitter on the team. I think he hit something like forty seven home runs in fifty seven games in eighteen sixty nine. Uh, he was just a, a star player. And then they also recruited several players that were playing in Cincinnati on other teams. They recruited Cal McVay from Indianapolis. Uh, to be their right fielder. He was, I think, 18 or 19 years old. Wright had seen him play the year before, thought he had potential. You know, they put the team together and then basically would play anybody that would give him a game for a third of the gate.
1: Harry Wright is sort of the first star player in what we consider Major League Baseball, starting in kind of that 1871 time period when you see a list of you know here you know going back you know all the way to the 1870s even when you pull up war for the Braves franchise and we'll talk a little bit towards the end about how that's kind of the antecedent of the Braves franchise but he's kind of the one guy from way back then who appears so did I say if I may have said Harry I meant to say George George. I apologize Yeah. yeah George is Harry is kind of more of a he plays a little bit Early 1870s, I think, I don't know when he officially retires, much earlier than George. And there's a difference in age of like 12 or 13 years, isn't there?
3: Yeah, Harry, Harry, I think was 33 in 1869, which made him by far the oldest player on the team. But he did continue to play. He would play center field and he would be probably the earliest relief pitcher Mm -hmm. in baseball history. He would finish up games um, as a pitcher. But George, yeah, in fact, George was the first 19th century player elected to the Hall of Fame in 1937. Mm -hmm. So even 40, 50 years later, he had made a big enough impression to be selected. And he was selected. It's kind of sad. He lived till he was 90. So he was selected just a few months after uh, after he died in 1937,
1: whereas it took Harry, I think sometime in the fifties.
3: I want to say, yeah, he did not get in until 1953. And that was one of the fun things I worked on in the book was just trying to figure out what took so long because they had named several other pioneers and executives and it was just kind of bad luck. And the hall of fame voting was kind of disorganized the first several years. So he did not get in until uh, 1953.
1: So the the centerpiece of this 1869 team is this national tour that they embark on where they go undefeated for the whole 1869 season. Tell us a little bit about sort of the the idea behind that tour and how it got Mm -hmm. organized and put together.
3: Okay. Yeah, the uh, Harry Wright and Aaron Champion would generally, you would just write teams and ask them for games and get a date and they had after a few warm up games in the cincinnati area they basically in june started to work their way east they went up and played in cleveland kind of worked their way across new york before heading to new york where they played i want to let me look up the actual numbers here yeah no, i'll just yeah. let you look
2: yeah they started in cleveland then yeah. buffalo rochester and then uh there was that game against the Union of Lansingburg, that yes, game that, the that was a controversial game, I believe, right, where they, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you know, and as they gradually worked their way and then bought and then into Boston, it looks like.
3: Yeah, Boston and the games in Boston weren't particularly competitive, but then, yeah, June 15th, they hit New York and they played, let's see, it looks like one of their five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, about fourteen games between June twelfth and July fifth in New York, Philadelphia, and Boston, and the first of those was the game against the Mutuals, uh, which was quickly became famous as the greatest game ever because the final score was four to two. <laughs> the Red Stockings averaged, I think, forty two runs a game in in eighteen sixty nine. But they were notable, and this was one of the Harry Wright's innovations, he basically invented baseball team defense. So that's a pretty huge edge if you know to hit a cutoff man or back up third base on a throw, things like that. He had basically invented and practiced and perfected that. So the Red Stockings' big edge wasn't necessarily hitting, even though they averaged 42 runs a game. It was their defense. And in this particular game, it was two to two going into the ninth inning before the Red Stockings scratched out a couple runs, and they had to turn a double play in the in the uh, top of the ninth just to uh, keep it a two to two. But that four to two game that just sent the the writers and the papers and the baseball fans were just stunned that a game could be so well played that it would be four to two. If you held a team to 10 runs back then, that was considered a defensive masterpiece.
0: I believe you also write in
1: the book that he, Harry Wright, was credited with inventing the defensive shift, which everybody thinks of as a much more modern, really kind of the earliest you ever hear it discussed is like the 46 World Series with Ted Williams. When people want to back up, they say, oh, you know, they shifted on Ted Williams and. Meanwhile, in actuality, the Wright brothers, these Wright brothers, not the other yeah. Wright brothers, were yes. <laughs> um were shifting as far back as the late 1860s.
3: Yes. Yeah. And yeah, Henry Chadwick noted that, that he had the outfielders moving way in or way out, depending on who was batting and they would. Yeah, he would he would do shifts. And yeah, that's just why, you know, miles ahead of where everybody else was at that time.
2: There's a, there's a whole, it's on, in the version of the book I have, it's right on page 100, but there,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, there'd been earlier sort of tables in the book talking about how different certain things were, there was no pitcher's mound, that sort of thing, but this is all things, it's like, oh no, this is, what you would recognize as modern baseball, things like the first baseman playing off the bag with nobody on, close to the bag when there's a runner on. You mentioned hitting relays, taking leads off bases and things like that. We had done an episode a few months ago about the 1890s Orioles. And in in addition to talking about all the fighting and drinking, we talked about how (laughs) they were credited with inventing the hit and run. And we talk about how you don't even think about that needing to be something that had to be invented, but it obviously did. Mm -hmm. And here we are a couple of decades earlier and you're thinking, Oh yeah, of course that, of course uh, they would shift on defense or that they would try to turn a double play, but that you Mm -hmm. can't take that for granted. Somebody had to invent that or pioneer Mm -hmm. it at least. And it seems like the Harry Wright uh, Cincinnati red stockings, and then later the Boston team, Mm -hmm. were some of the uh, real pioneers in that regard.
3: Yeah, and if you look at the stats for that Boston team in a much more developed league, it's the pitching and defense that that really Mm -hmm. stands out, and that was Harry Wright's influence. One of the rules that was not in effect back then was the infield fly rule. So they would often get out of innings by, you know, letting a pop-up fall with the runners on and then quickly turning a double play.
2: The other rule I thought that was interesting that was the is sort of the um the being able to catch the ball on one bounce on one bound, right? Mm -hmm. Where that was still considered the same as a uh like catching it on the fly would be in a lot of ways different again. Pitcher had to throw underhanded and no mound 45 feet, but in a lot of ways, baseball's always been baseball, or at least as far back as we're talking about here, where the outfits and the uh the facial hair looks different but a lot of the play is still the same kind of thing. Yeah. In
3: 1869 the rule was actually they had they had made the rule that you had to catch a fair ball, but a foul oh. ball could be ca- caught on a bounce for an out. Okay. And that actually made an interesting situation for the catchers because you would get foul tips mm-hmm. and if you caught them on one bounce they were out. So a catcher that was brave enough to get close and Catch ball, you know, catch foul tips on one out on one bounce was highly valued.
1: So they're on this tour. They're winning all these games.
2: Before How are you? And I did just want to say, because you brought you brought up the catcher real quick. Yeah. I don't think this was the intent, but uh, Doug Allison in this book, you really do start to the parts where they're complaining that he's not a uh, Allison was the catcher, right? Yes. Yes. Where they're complaining that he's soft and he's missing games due to injuries as a barehanded catcher. <laughs> you, yes, you, you do have to really feel bad for the guy, even though in a lot of ways he wasn't the most sympathetic figure in this book. A few times I had to catch myself was like, oh, they're accusing this guy of dogging it for having sore hands. catching ball <laughs> yes, Yeah. So yeah,
3: again, you read the <laughs> game accounts and like every third game and split lip cracked thumb uh, yeah he he <laughs> took a beating yeah so
1: I was going to save this to the end but this is one of the I took a couple pictures Greg of your your okay. slides during the game because does the quotes were just so hilarious to me from the newspaper account of the time and I had okay. sent them to Andrew and so this is Doug Allison in the Cincinnati Gazette as for Allison he should be placed in right field where he would have nothing to do or be accommodated with a sofa while catching His lazy antics are utterly without excuse, and he does not gain any credit by indulging in them. Yes. And then they also said, Mr. Mr. Allison's organ of self-conceit has been terribly enlarged this season. The public expects work and no fine airs and no exhibitions of crooked temper and exaggerated self-importance. Allison is not the best catcher in the country by several. They really beat this poor guy up.
3: Yeah, that was in 1870. So that was the year after. Although I remember that those two quotes at the time, the red stockings, I think, were 42, two and one (laughs) with their record. And apparently that wasn't good enough for for the papers. Uh,
1: So the, the quotes from the newspaper kind of lead into the question I was about to ask. While they're on this tour and they're winning all these games, how are they being received back home?
3: The city is just absolutely falls in love with them. I mean, mm-hmm. they're they're telegraphing the scores back for each game. And the excitement just builds because the whole idea that a team from the West could even play with all these teams in the East that have been around a lot longer and things like that was just shocking. And, you know, one of the purposes, the the Red Stockings club that came together. Was to help sell the city just in a commercial way, raise the profile that that's a very modern, you know, a sports team as a city representative. This this is kind of where it starts.
1: Yeah, might be the first instance of that.
3: So, yeah, the city is getting completely excited. And by the time they finish the tour of the West on July 5th and they go to Washington, they beat the Washington Nationals. They're received by President Grant. Mm-hmm. Which, if you think you're a 22 year old baseball player and you're meeting the greatest hero in the country and the president, who supposedly said to them, "Hey, I see you warm the uh, the Nationals uh, <laughs> yesterday," uh, and Grant you know. is
1: from Ohio, and so Grant there's Grant that tie in
3: Ohio, and not that far from Cincinnati, and you're just kind of another baseball team before June, and by July. You're by far the most famous team in the country. You're getting written up in the national magazines like Harper's Weekly and Leslie's Illustrated. You've got, you know, woodcuts of the team and things like that. They come back to Cincinnati in July from Washington. The team throws them or the city throws them a parade. They play an exhibition game, which is actually the, the, the ticket to the Hall of Fame has. And that's on the back cover of the book. Mm -hmm. They play an exhibition game to raise money for the club and they play a pick nine and beat them like 50 to nine. And then they have this giant decadent banquet that evening with all the city fathers, you know, praising the red stockings and, you know, thanking them for what they're doing for the city. And, you know, you have quotes of people saying things like, I don't know much about this baseball, but you're doing great things for the city. So thanks. Uh, and that was kind of the peak. Was right, you know, coming back from that first tour, they continued to play games. They did get a couple of the stronger teams came to Cincinnati for rematches. Uh, they had a couple other near misses uh, or a couple of close games, but for the most part, they were pretty dominant. And then the uh, and then the other kind of big event that they're remembered for happens is that a uh, promoter in San Francisco is looking for an attraction Mm -hmm. and a game. And he offers to pay their expenses to come out to play some games in San Francisco. And he says, Oh yeah, we've got, we got teams that will be competitive with you. And so they take the transcontinental railroad to San Francisco four months after it had been completed. And they play games through like St. Louis and that area. And they get on the train, take the four day trip to California get to San Francisco, beat the teams by an average of like 50 to five. (laughs) But, uh, you know, they were the first team to play on both coasts and it wouldn't happen again until 1957.
1: (laughs) That's a good point. And I think that's an important aspect of this to keep in mind is this would not have been possible even five years earlier, civil war notwithstanding, because, The Transcontinental Railroad was just very, very recently finalized. And so there's all of the sort of historical aspects of this, whether it's the technological revolution in communications with the ability to telegraph back to the home city to let them know how the team's doing. Newspapers are proliferating. And then you have the Transcontinental Railroad, which for the first time allows these teams, albeit, you know, a lot more slowly than we would would expect in this day and age allows them to travel back and forth from coast to coast all in the same baseball year.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the baseball year back then ran more. It was more like from May to November mm-hmm. is is when they played played most of their games. And uh, and then when they got back from that tour, they had a few more games. They once they finished the year, fifty seven and zero. My co-author Greg Rhodes thinks that's a major reason they became so famous. That if they had gone 55 and two or something, it would have been really impressive. But that that they were 57 and oh, uh really, you know, built up their legend and and the interest of fans everywhere uh, about the team. Go ahead,
2: Andrew. I was gonna say it reminded me in a lot of ways of and I know it's not a fully apt comparison, but like you know, college football now, when a lower conference team goes 13-0, and and it's like, well, they didn't play the toughest schedule, and it's it's sort of like, well, what did you want them to do? They played everyone who was willing to play them, and they won. And right. obviously, the, the Red Stockings did play as many top teams as they were able to play on the East Coast. You know, they would have loved it if more of those teams came and played them in Cincinnati, and actually, you guys talk about how... Mm-hmm when weighing the positives of going to the West Coast trip, there was some consideration of, well, should we just raise money and go back East again and get another crack at all these top teams? But there was still some sort of, I don't want to say, well, I guess detractors who thought, well, yeah, they haven't beat, they haven't lost to anybody, but really how many games against the top teams did they play compared to, and it's kind of a similar thing to what you hear now where you'll hear, well, LSU has two losses, but they were to Alabama and Georgia. That's more impressive than what to use a Cincinnati, you know, the Bearcats last year. It's, it's sort of similar to that, but I kind of look at it and I'm like, well, they played who everybody they was willing to play them. They played and they beat and, you know, usually pretty handily with a couple of exceptions. Yes not quite the same but just a little bit of a the closest parallel i could come up with 100 right
3: cars. and that that <laughs> is probably the closest mm-hmm. yeah if 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 all of college football was in one giant conference that would be pretty much what the the Nas- national association of uh, professional ba- baseball players would have been like
2: mm-hmm. yeah it was basically new york brooklyn philadelphia and then yeah you know, the and then the field after that yeah so.
1: yeah before we move on to 1870 i want to talk a little bit about sort of the economics of this first of all what kind of crowds are they playing in front of when they go on these whether it's either of the trips or you know in cincinnati what do the crowds look like size wise whatever
3: boy it, it varies all over mm-hmm. i mean you know 500 is a common number in a smaller town but when they got to New York and after they had beaten the mutuals and were suddenly getting a reputation, I believe the highest crowd they might've played is estimated. And again, it's an estimate uh like 10 or 12,000 okay. for some of the games in is uh, some of the key games in New York. Um, but uh, in Cincinnati, it's anywhere from 500 uh, to 5,000. If it's, it's, if it's a big draw, Um uh, a mission would vary depending on the the quality of the competition. A lot of times, it was a quarter. Harry Wright was a big proponent of charging fifty cents. Uh, he rather he said rather famously that a a good game is worth fifty cents mm-hmm. and a bad game is not worth a quarter. But you know, he compared it to what stage plays cost back then, mm-hmm. and so that was one thing he really wanted to push again, making it a profession to charge uh, higher rates. Now, in 1870, the cards were really flipped because now they had all the bargaining power. So instead of getting a third of the gate, they were taking two-thirds of the gate. And for some of those games out on the the East Coast against the big teams, I think they were charging as much as a dollar, which was a really huge amount back then.
1: The early financials of the tour were really interesting to me. The fact that they would get to some of these cities and it would be a real problem if there was rain, for instance, because yes. that would mean there was no game. And they they had one yeah. scheduled the next day, you know, miles and miles away. So they would lose every time it rain, they'd have to worry about losing money and potentially not being able to keep the tour going.
3: Right. There were there. There was a early case where they had to borrow money from one of the backers wives, I believe, to uh, to make the next stop. And the the club had formed in 1866, late late in the year, and they had spent a fair amount of money both recruiting players and making improvements to Union Grounds in Cincinnati where they played. So they, particularly in 1869, they were they were starting to make more money, but you know, using it to pay off, you know pay off the debts just as fast as they were bringing it in. And, you know, they made a decent amount of money after the East Coast tour. The West Coast tour was paid for by the uh, by the promoter, but they didn't make a lot of extra money off that because the games were so uncompetitive. And toward the end of the year, you you know, they weren't playing great teams, so they weren't drawing that much. So by the end of 1869, I think there's I forget what the exact number is. I think it was a dollar thirty nine in profit for the entire year. Wow. But it, you know, like I said, it it would change in 1870, at least for a while. And then the economics kind of went backwards on them.
1: So let's move forward to 1870. And this is when the winning streak finally comes to an end uh, out in New York and Brooklyn. And that is considered kind of maybe the first greatest. You said there was one in '69 as well that was considered the greatest game ever played. But this is even when you sort of read, you know, stories of you know the greatest baseball games ever played. This is like the one from the very early days that makes it on there. Tell us about the team they played and and how the streak came to an end.
3: Okay, Uh, the team they played was the uh, Brooklyn Brooklyn Atlantics. They had done the exact same pattern that they had done in 1869 they well they they did make a trip to new orleans for some warm-up games played around the city and then started to work their way east they came in played the mutuals that they had beaten i think four to two the year before and just trashed them and then the next day they played the brooklyn atlantics and the atlantics had been one of the best teams in baseball for several years They had always been a strong competitor in 1869. However, the reds beat the red stockings had beaten them 32 to 10. So there was no real expectation that they were going to get upset. But again, they played a a very competitive game that was tied. uh, I think it was five, five after. um, Yeah, five, five after, after nine innings. And at that point, the Atlantics were willing to take a tie. But under the rules of the day, uh, the challenging club, which was the Red Stockings, if you if you insisted you wanted to take a tie and the other team did not want to take a tie, it would be a forfeit. So Harry Wright pointed that out to them, and then they... Uh, So they agreed to go ahead and play extra innings and play it out.
1: And one of the funny things that you have in the book is that one of the reasons why they were so eager for ties was that you could then spend, or I'm sorry, you could then make more money with a rematch.
3: Yes. Yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of rumors in a lot of games of, oh yeah, that's kind of a fishy tie this team that uh, isn't competitive with another team. And uh you know, there might have been that kind of influence to just, yeah, to squeeze an extra game with more interest in it. But in this case, 5-5 five, five after 9, the team is scoreless in the 10th. So, again, this is, by the standards of the time, an incredibly tight, low-scoring game. The Red Stockings scratch out a couple of runs in the 11th inning. So they're up 7-5. to five, Everybody thinks it's over. But the Atlantic's come back with a rally. There's one mildly controversial play where there's a ball hit into right field. Cal McVay is going to field it. A fan jumps on his back (laughs) because it was standing room only, but it really didn't have much influence on, on the outcome because basically the red stockings didn't get anybody out in the bottom of the 11th and, and they ended up scoring three runs and that ended the streak as they lost eight to seven in 11 innings. And this was now, the greatest game ever, and I compared it in my talk to Game Six of the '75 World Series or the 2011 World Series, where you had just a lot of back and forth, extra innings, and you know, one final big, big change in the in the outcome. Now, the one thing that we realized as we were working on this book was that almost the general narrative about the Red Stockings was, oh, they lost a the game, nobody cared anymore. And that was not the case at all. I mean, they won their next 15 games after that. And the club actually made plans to add seats to the stadium in August when they were going to be away on a road trip. And, you know, if everybody was losing interest, that's a funny way to show it, I guess. And the team continued to be very competitive until August when a lot of things happened all at once to kind of you know, set up the end of the red stockings after the 1870 season.
2: I think one of the things is, and I was happy to see you guys printed the the telegram about it, because um probably the genesis for this podcast, just in general, not the specific episode, but my brother and I grew up watching the Ken Burns mm-hmm. baseball tapes mm-hmm. over and over and over. <laughs> yeah. And they do, they have the... the
1: I actually watched that clip just before we started here as like a way to get myself in the right frame of mind that that eight minute or so clip on the red stockings. But anyway, go ahead, Andrew.
2: So after the loss, champion uh, sends a telegram back to Cincinnati where the fans are watching. And it says New York, June 14, Atlantic's eight, Cincinnati seven. The finest game ever played. Our boys did nobly, but fortune was against us. Eleven innings played, though beaten, not disgraced. A.B. champion Cincinnati baseball club. And the Ken Burns baseball, which is in a lot of ways great, it's a great primer. Mm-hmm. There are things they gloss over, and I think after he read, after the narrator reads that telegram, he basically says, "With the streak over, attendance dropped, interest waned, and the club fold." Mm-hmm. Like, and that's that makes it seem like, oh yeah, they lost, in the these supposedly really, really diehard fans <laughs> yeah. were just like, oh well, we're not interested if they're ever going to lose. Mm-hmm. And, and really, as we'll get to. It was a lot more complicated than that as 1870 turned into 1871. But uh, mm-hmm. I think that may be where some of that comes from in this day and age is yeah. to the extent that people remember it. They're like, oh, well, as soon as they lost, people stopped caring. And that's really not yeah.
3: accurate. right. Right.
1: So if that's not what sort of brings things to an end for the red stockings in Cincinnati, what is?
3: Okay, there were several events, I think, starting in August that that kind of brought it to the end. I've mentioned Aaron Champion and John Joyce, who were the real forces behind the baseball club. And the Cincinnati Baseball Club, that was basically an organization, you could almost think of it as like the Green Bay Packers on a much lower scale. I mean, basically, it was these lawyers and businessmen in the city that all contributed to being part of this club, you know, contributing the funds for it. But they were the ones that were really driving toward, we're going to be professionals. We're going to have the, you know, the best team that we can recruit. And on August 2nd, they both resigned from the club. So this is the middle of the season. They're still one of the top teams in the country and their two driving forces just resigned. Thomas Gilbert in his wonderful book that won the Casey award, how baseball happened really dug into this. This is a case of, you know, it's sad when a really great uh, source comes out after you've published the book, Uh, (laughs) but uh, he noted that Joyce was mixed up in the rackets and champion had political uh, aspirations and these guys were best friends (laughs) And he figured the best way to protect his interest in the rackets was to help his best friend get elected. And in fact, in October, he did run for prosecuting attorney in the city and he lost. But to the extent that he thought maybe the baseball team would give him a kickstart to his political career, didn't happen. But that left the club in charge of a a gentleman named APC Bonte, who did not have the same passion For having the very best team out there. A couple weeks later, George Wright, the best player in baseball, the star of the team, tries to steal second base and rips up his knee. Mm -hmm. He's not done for the year. He does come back. And it's kind of amusing because the rules back then allowed you to have a courtesy runner. So he eventually came back. he would play first base or outfield instead of shortstop, and somebody would run for him while he batted, but he wasn't the same player and One could really argue the difference between the red stockings and the field in eighteen sixty nine and early eighteen seventy was george Wright and having him hurt uh really really put a damper on the on the team's prospects and then they started to have a lot of dissension among the team. The team kind of divided up into two factions, which I think I called in the presentation the rule followers, which was the rights, mm-hmm. Charlie Gould, Cal McVay, and the rule breakers. Charlie Sweezy, uh, who battled alcoholism throughout his career, uh, the pitcher Aza Brainard, Fred Waterman, the other you know the other players on the team. You had a faction, and it boiled over in a game in Portsmouth where the red stockings actually won on a walk-off grand slam by Charlie Sweezy and on the boat ride back, apparently a bunch of fights broke out and it wasn't clear whether it was among the players, the crew, the other passengers or all three. But when they got back to Cincinnati, the uh, club basically expelled Charlie Sweezy Mm -hmm. for starting the fight. One day later, they realized, well, George Wright is still hurt. We got some really key games coming up with Chicago, and Charlie Sweezy still a good player, and he apologized, so they let him back on the team the next day. Jeez. But it was clear that there was a lot of dissension. But the thing that really killed him was after the Red Stocking success in 1869, Chicago City backers saw that and said, we want one of those too. And they actually, they put an ad in the New York Clippers saying, we're forming a professional team. If you're a player, let us know and uh, we'll make you an offer. And they hired a guy named Jimmy Wood, who was a longtime player with the Brooklyn, one of the Brooklyn teams, to put the team together. According to his diary, Harry Wright actually recommended him to the city, the Chicago City backers. They dropped $18,000 on a team. And at the time they were going to play, they had had a good, not a great record. I think they were 48-8 and eight at the time they played the Red Stockings, who only had, I think, two losses and a couple ties at that point. But because Chicago was so adamant about, your, your job is to beat the Red Stockings. This team is put together to beat the Red Stockings. This became a giant rivalry between the two Two teams. They played a game in Cincinnati. George Wright wasn't ready. And Chicago won 10-6. to Close game, but but the Red Stockings just, just couldn't hit. A few weeks later, they went up to Chicago for the return game. 15,000 fans turned out. They played at a place called Dexter Park that is not too far from the current side of Comiskey. Close game again red stockings defense collapses in the ninth inning, eight, eight going into the ninth, they give up eight runs and lose the game 16 to eight. And because so much had been put into this regional rivalry and the two cities were commercial rivals at that time, that is in our mind, what sank the red stockings Mm -hmm. because after those two losses, they weren't even the best team in the West anymore. They tried to get a rematch. Chicago was like, no, we beat you twice. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> we we really don't need to do that. So they played out the season, they lost a couple more games. Although at the end of the year they actually had the best record of the good te- the professional teams in the uh National Association, but that wasn't how the pennant was determined. It was beating a team two times out of 3. In fact, at the end of the year, there was really no champion because there was a game between Chicago and New York that went uh index for innings and then it looked like there's some chicanery with the umpires and one team went ahead and the other one walked off the field so there was really no clear winner of the 1870 season and at that point the national association kind of collapsed and led to the first professional league in 1871.
2: I did just want to circle back on that because I meant to bring it up earlier because yeah. you mentioned the umpires. The book yeah. uh, is very good. It goes into sort of umpires were kind of just had to be chosen and agreed. There was no like right. assigned umpire to a game. It talks about how guys on the red stockings on a day off or something might umpire a different game for two different teams. And the teams right. had to agree on who would be the umpire. And if you're – yes you know, if you're a team from Cincinnati and you're playing a team in Philadelphia in from Philadelphia, in Philadelphia, you're kind of at their mercy or, you know, so that was obviously in a lot of ways, the, the league as it is that we're talking about here was better. It was the first league that was organized at all, but Mm -hmm. these late 1860, early 1870s showed just how much that how much more needed to be done to the National Association in 1871.
3: Yeah, it was funny. One of Harry Harry Wright's last job in baseball was actually the supervisor of umpires for the National League in, I think, 1894. (laughs) He had retired from managing, but he was still very highly respected. But it wasn't, I think, until 1878 or 79 that the National League said, we got to have a professional group of umpires. And they actually, you know, had a staff to umpire the games. Otherwise, like you said, yeah, hmm. a player, another player would umpire the games. In their first game against Chicago, there was a lot of blame on the umpire. They thought he hadn't called a fair game. And they actually agreed to get one of the most respected players from the East to call the uh The game, the second game in Chicago, a guy named Robert Ferguson, who's a big name in 1860 and 1870s baseball. We should
2: probably now move to the end. So the 1870 season ends. It's not the 1869 season, but on the surface, it's still in a lot of ways a Mm -hmm. successful campaign. Right. And then sort of the fallout that happens between the board, the Wright brothers, and what ultimately leads to there not being a Cincinnati red stockings anymore by the time the dust has settled.
3: Yeah. The attendance did fall off after those losses to Chicago. And so that put the, uh, the, the club, which was putting up all the money and again, spending it as fast as they were making it in a tough spot. And the other thing that, that really hurt him was, the one thing the red stockings had established was there was a market for baseball played at the highest level, which meant good baseball players. There was now a very, you know, the demand for them was much higher than what they had than what they were paying this time around. And, uh, the head of the, the new head of the, uh, of the baseball club, it actually was actually quoted in the Cincinnati Enquirer uh, sometime in October, with words to the effect that, Hey, the rights are pretty good, but they're not, you know, we can get along just fine without them. And people were, were, you know, pretty much at that point, actively recruiting Harry, Wright To take over their team. And there were a lot of players, high level players, both on the red stockings and on other teams that were like, we want to go play with Harry. The guy's a winner, you know, it's, uh, (laughs) and basically the club, tried to figure out what what would work with the money that they were making at that time, and they realized it was a much smaller amount. So they made some offers to some of the players, but they basically weren't competitive. They were pay cuts from what they had made the year before. Harry Wright then got an offer from Boston to organize the Boston team, and he and George went to Boston along with – Charlie Gould and uh, Cal McVeigh, that that little click. The rest of the players went to Washington as a group and played for, I believe, the Nationals. And of that group, Andy Leonard's the only one that played for Harry Wright again. He joined the Reds, the Boston team in 1872 and had a very long career in that era of the, of the uh, National Association in the early days of the National League. But at that point, the club just said, we're, we're just returning to playing amateur baseball. And that was it. And uh, a year later, they auctioned off all the trophies and, and uh, everything. And that was the end of the Red Stockings.
1: And I know you have an yeah. article in the or an article. You have a chapter in the book about some of that lost memorabilia and where yeah. exactly it ended up. And that 1871 team, I'd have to double check that. But I think that that 1871 Boston Red Stockings is probably the only 1871 team that can be directly traced to a modern day major league team yes. because of the Boston Red Stockings, Red Caps. And then, yep. you know, they eventually become the Boston Braves. And then they're the Milwaukee Braves and the Atlantic Braves. So, right. And so this would be, or last year, I guess, would have been the 150th If I'm Mm -hmm. doing the math right, anniversary of that Boston team. Yeah. There are some other National League teams that have their birth, you know, sometime in the 1880s or so. The the Giants, obviously, are the ones that come immediately to mind. But yeah, that's the one team, and it goes back even further. And it's kind of interesting how that works, not only to those 1871 Braves, but to another team in another city, which is this 1869 Reds that everybody considers, rightly or wrongly, Mm -hmm. to be the very first professional baseball team Andrew I think you had a point to make
2: well I was just gonna I was gonna read that initial quote about the rights before they left from the book it says uh they are good players beyond a doubt but the papers have been so loud and so extravagant in their praise that to be frank their heads are turned and they seem to consider that we cannot get along without them and then after the announcement is oh we're not gonna pay players we're gonna go back to amateurism the papers a lot of whom had been very supportive of the club and the board before that are pretty scathing there's i'm looking at a (laughs) i'm looking at a a cartoon of fat out of shape with the cincinnati (laughs) uh, with the cincinnati logo on there that's the one guy is fanning himself sitting on a bucket and then there's they ran sarcastic headlines about how an exciting game of baseball is expected to come off on the union grounds on 4th of July. The contestants will be the red stocking and the early birds of Cumminsville uh, (laughs) just really going after the the team. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of also belies the the point we were talking about a few months ago that, Oh, after they lost a game, the fans stopped caring. They were Mm -hmm. obviously frustrated with how the 1870 season went, but they were even more frustrated when, you know, they, by all accounts could have fielded an at least competitive team going forward mm-hmm. and decided to just fold up the whole endeavor.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, that's, that's very much the, the influence of not having champion and choice there because, mm-hmm. you know, and when these clubs started, they were kind of like a golf club. I mean, it was to get together and play ball that it, yeah. you know, morphed into something similar to a team representing the city and becoming a business, you know, very different from the actual origins of the club a few years ago. So there were members that it was all great when they're undefeated and the, you know, the toast of the nation. But, you know, the minute that it wasn't, there were plenty of people's like, what, you want another increase in dues to pay players? And they were they were ready to bail.
2: <laughs> the only other thing I wanted to bring up, and and I would have kind of not... I would have kind of wondered the article I have here is a John Thorne article. So I trust that there's some accuracy to it. Yes. (laughs) Um, So it talks about in 18, we mentioned how a lot of the players sort of the right camp went to the Boston team. And then most of the rest of them went and Mm -hmm. played, it says for the Olympic club of Washington, D.C. And there's an interesting anecdote in this article about how in July of 1871, both teams through sort of corks in the national association schedule, came to Cincinnati and they were going to play but the day before they basically all the guys on both teams who had been on the 1869 red stockings played on one team and then the rest of the players played on another team oh jeez at, yeah. at the union grounds and had yes. like a had a brief sort of reunion game and then the next yeah. day they played with their more traditional they played on the teams they were currently on yeah but that was uh that was something I hadn't seen in doing the research for this sort of the, the articles called the last hurrah of the Cincinnati Red Redstock. Yes.
3: Yeah. That was one of the interesting uh, Mm. little sidelights of the, uh, of the team and Harry Wright had was incredibly successful as a manager. They did not win in 1871. And some of that is George Wright was probably still recovering from his knee injury, but then they won 1872, 73, 74, 75. One of those years, I think they were 71 and nine or something, just some insane record like that. And then they won the first two years of the National League in 1876 and 77. And in fact, first guy to one of the guys to end uh Harry Wright's streak, George Wright decided to manage the Providence team for one year. They won the championship. And then George was getting at that point close to retirement, but, uh, you know, he was one of the guys that stopped, uh, stopped Harry from winning Harry. Then (laughs) after he left Boston, he was hired by the team that became the Philadelphia Phillies and their first year, if I remember right, I think they were the year before he coached them, they were 17 and 83. He had them over 500 and in contention pretty much within a year and he managed them for like another another like decade or so.
2: Yeah, it says here his last year as a manager was 1893.
3: So, right. yeah. Yeah. You know,
2: 25 years after the the team we've been mostly talking about today. Right.
3: And then there was an interesting thing when he died, he died in 1895 the National League decided we wanted to raise money to put a monument on his uh, uh, grave, which they did do. So they played a series of exhibition games in every city. And in Cincinnati, Charlie Gould, who had played for the team, the 1882 Reds, Reds Reds, who had won the uh, American association in their first year played the current Reds, the 1896 Reds and Charlie Gould, (laughs) strapped it on for the 1882 reds and put, played and they said yeah he got a couple hits and and uh the reds had a player named big defee who's in the national hall of baseball hall of fame who was on both of those teams uh so i think he played with the 1882 team also but each city played an exhibition game and uh i think we have the details in the book uh, you know but they raised uh three thousand dollars to put a very nice monument on Harry Wright's grave in Philadelphia that calls him the father of professional baseball.
1: I have to step in and give myself a little bit of a plug here, because one of the things that I'm involved with with Sabre right now is there's hopefully going to be a book coming out about Yankee Stadium, the, the first Yankee Stadium, or the 23-08 the, the yankee stadium and sure. i've contributed a couple articles that i'm hoping will you know get published one is actually on the 62 nfl title game because it, they're we're looking at not just baseball but you know anything yeah. that happened at yankee stadium mm-hmm. and the other thing is i'm writing about sort of the last several appearances of babe ruth at yankee stadium sort of post playing mm-hmm. and one of them is Babe Ruth Day that was held in, I believe it was 1947 was when they did Babe Ruth Day. Mm -hmm. And one of the notes that I found was that it was and it was there was a Babe Ruth Day. It was not only at Yankee Stadium, but there were Babe Ruth Days throughout the majors Mm -hmm. and even in the minor leagues and even in Japan, interestingly enough. And one of the notes that I found was it was the first time that major league baseball had held a day for somebody that way all across the league mm-hmm. since Harry right. Wright in 1896. So as you're talking about this, I'm like, this sounds really familiar. And then I realized, yeah. Like, Oh yeah, I was just writing about that a couple <laughs> of days ago. Um, I had one last question I wanted to ask, but Andrew, why don't you, Did you sounded like you had something as well.
2: Well, I was just going to say that ties in nicely to sort of spinning it forward. You mentioned the 1880. So there's no pro baseball and, cincinnati for about a decade in 1882 the current what is now the current Mm -hmm. cincinnati reds joined the american association they're there what until 1889 and then jump over to the national league and that's the uh franchise that still exists to this day barring a brief name change to ward off anybody's fears that they are a, a communist organization <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> despite the fact that the existence of the franchise predated communism yes. but other, than, <laughs> other than that they uh, they still exist to this day and and um you know so that's the tie there was there was that 10-year gap and also the the just the red stockings name they were really the the team and you can correct me if this is another mm-hmm. one of those falsehoods but that sort of what we consider the classic baseball uniform of like the high socks. They're sort of considered the pioneers of that. As opposed to the previous, you know, looks that didn't, that Mm -hmm. wasn't a feature of baseball uniforms until this particular red stockings team.
3: Right. And that got a lot of press at the time. You, you Mm -hmm. hear, you see writers talking about that and the, that the women are impressed by the the manly calves of the uh, (laughs) red stocking players. But uh, yeah, that, you know, and if you think about the high socks, that was the look of baseball player, you know, baseball players, you know, for the next hundred years.
2: And then uh, the final thing I'll say, and then I'll, uh, I'll leave it alone. Just to show sort of the enduring legacy of this team. There is at present day, a team called the 1869, Cincinnati red stockings that play old time baseball in and around the Cincinnati area of um, looking at their schedule for the year right now, it looks like it also includes at least one pregame exhibition at great American ballpark before a game yes. earlier in the year on May 11th, it looks like, but you know, I see events sort of sprinkled throughout the summer at different chambers of commerce and um, you know, just different exhibitions and things. And yeah. I know, similar leagues to that exist around around the country but this is probably the one that plays by the oldest rules that I'm aware of so just still sort of shows that there's at least a pocket of of historians like ourselves out there who go out play 19th century baseball so
3: yeah vintage baseball is is actually a a big growing thing and that that was kind of one of the fun parts of researching the book was going to watch some games and I talked to several of those players just to uh, understand, you know, better, like, how do you play without a glove? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's kind of important. And they, you know, and they told me details about like the ball that would start out really hard, but by the sixth inning after you pounded it a few times, it would get lopsided and hard to throw straight and things like that. But yeah, that was one of the uh, interesting parts of researching the book. The other fun part was really looking a century past to 1969 when MLB made a real big deal out of the 100th anniversary of the Red Stockings. That's where the MLB logo came from, was in 1969. And they also named the all-time greatest team. That's where Joe DiMaggio got known as the greatest living player until he died, even though Willie Mays was also <laughs> alive. Uh, yeah. but, and uh, he
1: insisted on being called that in every yeah. single introduction. And there's a story. You can find it online. I just happened to yes. found it a couple, a couple, a couple months ago, I should say, or whenever it was. I, I think it was Mickey Mantle's funeral. Billy Crystal was giving a eulogy for or whatever you'd call it, a speech uh-huh. about Mantle. And they told him like right before he went up, they said, after you're done, introduce DiMaggio because DiMaggio is going to come up and say a few words. And Billy Crystal gave his little speech and he said, And now I'd like to introduce you all to the great, the legendary Jolton Joe Jolt DiMaggio, whatever he said. And apparently after that, at you know, over 80 years of age, in the you know, the 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 cocktail hour or whatever afterwards, DiMaggio comes up to Billy Crystal and just looks at him and says, greatest living ball player <laughs> and he either punches him in the shin or like kicks him in the in the you know kicks him in the shin or punches <laughs> him in hey, the
2: punching him in the shin would have been yeah. an interesting. Especially
1: for an 80 year old man either yeah either kicks him in the shin or punches him in the gut or something and yeah. it's like that meant a lot to him yes the, the story the, the question i wanted to ask and it actually ties into what you were saying greg yeah. and then also to what andrew yeah. was saying just sort of the legacy of these this team and in baseball and in Cincinnati, I know even 50 years later, they did a reunion at the, well, unfortunately, at the 1919 yes. World Series where George Wright and Cal McVeigh and maybe one or two others. So yeah. how are these players and this team kind of seen in Cincinnati then, later, even now? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting because looking at the papers, both from 1919 and even before that. That team was was revered. Mm -hmm. It was still revered in Cincinnati. And 50 years later, the Reds make the World Series for the first time. And they invite the living Remain, which was George Wright, Cal McVay, and a guy named Oak Taylor, who was just a substitute for a couple games. But they were given a parade through Cincinnati, tickets to the game. There's an account of of McVay and George Wright talking, you know, talking about the game, like the Reds catcher, Ivy Wingo threw out a couple of White Sox base stealers in the first game. And it's like, yep, he's just as good as Doug Allison was, and, <laughs> you know, things Rich like players. that. But, yeah. But they, <laughs> you know, and the team has always claimed them, even if it's not correct is kind of the, mm-hmm. you know, they claim, The Red Stockings is dating to 1869, birthplace of professional baseball. And they really reinforced it the year the book came out. And in fact, we were pleasantly surprised and gratified how much uh, support the Reds put into that anniversary. On May 4th of that year, which was the 150th anniversary of their first game, uh, they dedicated a pavilion outside Great American Ballpark that features uh, likenesses of all ten players plus Joyce and Champion. Uh, they had relatives of the rights, Charlie Gould, Champion, Cal McVay were were present at that at that ceremony. And they did one big celebration of the team's history the entire year, which certainly helped our book sales. Yeah, uh, but they wore throwback jerseys like I think fifteen mm-hmm. different times yep. uh, during yeah. the year, and uh, yeah. you know, and Cincinnati has always been proud of their uh, the history of the team. And the, uh, the
0: thing
2: I thought was was yeah. really cool when I was there in September, and I saw that pavilion. I was just about like after we went to the whole. Yeah, the, we were supposed to go to a day game. It got rained out we went back the next day to a night game the night before we left but we were like well we're here we'll go to the Hall of Fame after we left the Hall of Fame we went out and we saw that pavilion and you know I saw I was like oh this is specifically for the 1869 team the thing you mentioned with the 15 different throwbacks and and Dan you'll be familiar with this cuz one of them was my Facebook picture for a while throughout the city they have Benches with Mr. Redlegs and the yes. one from the one I was on, but he's wearing one each in each area. He's wearing a different throwback uniform. Mm-hmm. So like the one might be the 1869 team, the one might be the Big Red Machine style uniform. Right. But they they um so you can go like I guess it was a thing for a while of people getting their picture taken in each different yes. area or you know ones at the airport that yeah. kind of thing. But um yeah I was I was very impressed how they. Embrace their history and not just like, oh, here's a few things about the big red machine. And then, right, like, like we did the Crosley Field where they have like the mural, yes. and the plate of where right. Crosley Field used to mm-hmm. be. So, you know, we obviously, we do I mean, this
3: podcast, we love the history. Right. So, we
2: really, I was really impressed that the city embraced the history that much of the Reds. So.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of scary for, um, you know, I grew up with the Big Red Machine. Mm. We're rolling up on the, you know, we're in the 50th anniversary of that era now. uh, That's right, yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I did the 1969 throwback because that was my sweet (laughs) spot as uh, becoming a fan. And uh, I've worn that a couple times to fantasy camp games. Uh, (laughs) Got the stirrups and everything, but... uh, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's a you know, it's still a remarkable story. And I think John Thorne said it best that they made baseball famous. They're they're an indispensable bridge between kind of a hobby, you know, recreational activity to turning it into a profession. And Harry Wright is really the person that led that as, as much as anybody.
1: And we very much enjoy uh, talking about these, we, you know, we talk about everything on the podcast, but we like kind of really really going back far to the beginning of these teams and these leagues and all these foundings. And so Greg, we enjoyed the book. I enjoyed your presentation in Cooperstown a few months ago, and we encourage everybody once again to go out and purchase baseball revolutionaries, how the 1869 Cincinnati Red Stockings rocked the country and made baseball famous. Buy a copy for somebody as a gift and then buy yourself a copy at the same time if you also (laughs) want to read it, because there's nothing wrong with that. So, Greg Gages, thank you so much. This was incredible. We will catch you all next time for another fun sports history topic here on Hello, Old Sports. But until that time, I am Dan Newman.
0: And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself,
3: John Bozica, each month